that. We're looking at a couple verses from Titus 2, and uh, I'd like to read them, and then we'll pray. Verses 11 through 15, the last four verses there, or five verses of chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we know your words are life. They breathe spiritual nourishment to us. They guide us. Lord, they direct us. And we would ask Holy Spirit this morning, that's what you would do. Help us to hear your heartbeat. Lord, help us to hear every word of encouragement. Lord, every seed of exhortation and even reproof. So, Lord, we just give ourselves to you in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've ever, I'm sure probably most people, if you have MapQuest or one of them um, apps that kind of helps you get from one point to the other. And if you're like me, you've probably had situations where they didn't quite get where you wanted to go. Um, This lady in your phone who talks to you told you to turn left when you should have turned right. And uh, she told you that this street was over here and this street was not over there. And I don't know, isn't it interesting, though, when that happens, we start talking to her as if she's real, right? You ever do that? Siri, that's not the way to go, as if she's a real person. And, uh, but sometimes it's not easy to get, get from where you are to get to where you're going. Um, it can be a challenge at times, and it can be frustrating, uh, especially the more off track you get. And uh, this passage really is a lot about where we are and, and, and how God wants to get you and I to where we're going. And so I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey. You could be a babe in Christ, could have just came to Jesus Christ. You could be searching out and not really sure what's going on and and trying to figure out spiritually who God is, maybe what he wants for your life, or maybe you've been a Christian for many, many years. We're all in different places. But a key question we would all ask is, where am I right now? And even more, where does God want me to be? And how am I going to get there? What's it going to look like? And this passage is really helpful because the first thing Titus says in these, first, these five verses, verse 11 um, through 15, is this. You've got a real problem as we journey through this life. It's crucial for us to understand where we are, where God wants us to be, how he's going to get us there, but we need to acknowledge in our journey that there's some problems we face. It's important to get a hold of the real situation as we confront it or as God confronts it. Now, if you look at verse 11, grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny. That word deny doesn't mean deny that it exists, but to say no and recognize it's a real problem. And that's kind of where he's going with it. And he uses some phrases that help us understand the difficulty we face as we try to get where God wants us to go. Verse 12 This grace instructs us to deny ungodliness. 
Godly, ungodliness is simply this. It means we have an attitude and a lifestyle that clearly demonstrates one who's not serious about God, thus ungodliness. It's the person whose attitude, lifestyle, perspective just doesn't take serious God's call in their life, God's word in their life. You see, God wants godly people, not perfect people, but people who take God seriously, who pursue him in his ways. The problem is God points out in his word that we do not take him seriously. And when we don't take him seriously, we exhibit in the activities we find so attractive, which is this next point. Part of the real problem isn't just ungodliness, but if you look at verse 12, it's worldly desires. These are those powerful attractions that really flow out of the secular world that surrounds us. This has to do with an attitude of a heart, a mind, a lifestyle that shows that times are more interested in the age we live in than the age to come. Fundamentally, we can be more attracted to a life that is rooted in the material things in this world than we are about the spiritual realities of the world to come. Worldly desires. Peter understood in his epistle it wages war against our soul. That, that ongoing battle we fight with that sinful nature. There's worldly desires, and it's a problem. According to what Paul's telling Titus, he says, well, it's a problem. It's not just ungodliness, but, but, but my people will battle these worldly desires. And if that's not enough, he goes on, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. The biblical term, really, present age, is really talking about this idea of where we live right now, secularism. Secularism defined as a system of social ethics built upon a doctrine that ethical standards and conduct should be determined exclusively with reference to the present life, without reference to God. Think about that. In other words, we, we develop morals, we can develop ethics separate from anything God wants, based it upon our culture. And so if our culture says lying's okay, it's okay. That's the present system we live in. We live in a culture that's trying to push, well, shove uh, the morals of this present age on Christians. And it's a real problem, God says. It's all around us. It's a real problem in the world we live in. Seen many years ago, societies would try to disguise it. But no, that's no longer the case, is it? They don't even bother to. Think about TV, movies. They operate on a profit motive. Why do they put the shows on they do? It gives society what it wants. I mean, they're just going to keep making movies as long as people are going to go to the movies, they're going to watch these shows, they're just going to keep making them. That's why as we watch these shows, we're like, man, this never would have put this on TV 10 years ago. This never would have been in a movie 15 years ago. Why is it now? It's just giving society what it wants. And so society will pay for it. Media and Hollywood will give it what it's want. It's deeply anchored in the present age. We need to realize that. It's just a real problem. And because we can become so swamped with ungodly and wicked attitudes because it's rooted in the worldly passions in this present age, we often don't even know we're governed by them. It's subtle, isn't it? It just kind of creeps in after a while. We don't even know how much our thinking, our ethics, 
Our morals, our activities are simply modeling that which is contrary to all that God is. You see, it's not going to get us where God wants us to go. And that's the key question. Will ungodliness, will the worldly desires, will the present age take us to where God wants us to go? Absolutely not. And remember, Titus is written, this whole book is written by Paul to Titus to say, hey, you need to straighten out, set straight these churches, these, these, these gatherings of new believers. You need to set it straight. But Titus, there's a problem you're facing. It's these people are grow, uh, growing up, they're existing, they're, they're trying to grow in the context of ungodliness, worldly desires in the present age. And so they struggled back then with different temptations and different philosophies, just like we do. And often cases are a little different or have a di- little different flavor to them, but it's still a real problem. So in this context, to get where God wants his people to go, will require somebody or something to deal with the problem. God says, to get you where you want to go, I want to purify a people for my own. Remember the whole series is about what does it mean for us as his people to live together as God's people? What does it mean? What does it look like to live together? And I'm grateful that this passage goes on. Wouldn't it be horrible to read verse 12 and have a period and say it's the end of the book? We're like... My goodness, this is a horrible situation. But it doesn't. It gives us more. And it says one of the ways to get from where we are to get to where God wants is to experience real grace. And one of the tasks of the local church is to teach its members the awesome truth of grace and to help them experience its reality and power in their lives. And it's a big job. Because grace not only redeems, it reforms. And if we're not grace-oriented... We will be defeated, not developed. When we're law-oriented, it's restrictive. It's defeating. And when we live with a law-based religion, it actually can hold us in bondage. That doesn't get us where God wants us to go. We need to experience, first and foremost, real grace. Again, look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared... The grace of God has appeared. What's he referring to? Jesus Christ. That's what he's referring to. He's telling Titus, he says, instruct my people and remind them this grace of God, this majestic, unbelievable, awesome grace of God has appeared. It's grace. It will help them to experience all that God has for them. Look at verse 2, majestic, I call them, dramatic appearances are are mentioned. You see it in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. Now drop down to verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and appearing. So you have these two majestic, I call them lighthouses, in this text. And they help us understand where we are and where we're supposed to be going. The first appearance is a historical one. It's happened. Jesus Christ came. The Word became flesh and dwelt for a while among us. John says we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He has come. It's a historical fact. He appeared. But there's a second appearance he he talked about. It's a future one. It's an eschatological one. It is yet to happen. He appeared... 
he is going to come and appear again. And so these are the two lighthouses, these majestic truths that you and I need to understand. And if you haven't come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you haven't experienced the grace of God, this second appearing isn't something you look forward to. It would be a dreadful thought of Jesus coming back if you're not in right relationship with God. But for the Christian, which is who this is written to, the church, Paul wants Titus to make sure that people understand their historical fact Jesus came. Matter of fact, if you were just, even just looked at an um, objective, cursory reading of history with no bias, you would find an enormous amount of historical evidence for Jesus Christ coming to this earth. And it's, that's not to be denied. He has appeared, and he will appear again. This appearance of grace, this first lighthouse, is about God's unmerited favor. God's intervention in the human condition far predates man's desire for anything different than the ungodly, the wickedness, and the worldly pursuits. The reason God intervened in human condition is quite simply, he determined to give us unsolicited, undeserved grace. It was his free choice, his free choice, it was his initiative. No one talked him into it. God looked through the corridors of time at you and I, and he said they're worth it. I'll go to that earth and die for them. Think about the value that is. You and I are worth that much. It's called grace. Nothing we did to earn it. And this appearance of grace was portrayed in the incarnation. Dramatically among us, demonstrating God in the flesh. Those three words should be balm for our soul. Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. They're terms of grace. He appeared. What God had chosen to do about the human condition is based upon this first appearance. But then there's this second lighthouse on the other side of this span which is the focus of the saved. It's the key to God's purifying work. In this second dramatic appearance, this appearance of glory is yet to happen. Paul's telling Titus, those who understand the grace of God and are thrilled by it begin to say, God, how wonderful that you should have deal with me in grace. I'm excited about where your grace is going to take me. I'm excited about what you're going to do in my life. You see, those understand grace are excited by it. They're excited about what God is going to do to finalize all he has in mind. And sure, we're people that get frustrated with the sins that trip us up. And maybe the sin that we repeat and we repeat and we're trying to get by it and trying to get through it. But then we remember grace and say, God, thank you, you're at work. Thank you, you're not going to leave me here. But that your grace is enough, as we sang, to move me forward towards that second dramatic appearance called the second coming. In this lighthouse of grace, we respond by putting our trust in Christ as we continue this journey. We look at the second lighthouse of glory, where the one we have trusted will come again to take us to himself for all of eternity. As the text says, in verse 13, he's our blessed hope. Not wishful thinking, 
hope. It's sheer confidence that comes when you know the one you have believed. He's an anchor for our soul. That blessed hope allows us, even when things aren't going great, to say it's well with my soul. And I'm excited that he's coming again. And I'm excited that I'm going to be with him. That second lighthouse, that glory, moves us forward and helps you and I to get where God wants us to be. They're really two strong cables. You could say from lighthouse to lighthouse. As we journey, they're two strong cables that we need to hang on to and that we need to work in cooperation with what the Spirit wants to do. They're two cables on which everything hangs if we are to get from where we are to where God wants. Between the lighthouses. The first cable's redemption. Verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purity. To redeem us. This term of redemption runs all through the scripture. It's really the story of the Bible. God redeeming man and giving us hope. Redeem means released from the bondage of sin. That Jesus paid a ransom in order that we might be free. Free to do what? To go where God wants us to go, which is in glory with him. We've been redeemed, and it came at a great price, the blood of Christ. I I came across um, a little clip um, about Chris Chris Pratt. He's an actor. I think it's right, Pratt. And uh, he gave a little talk. He accepted an award. It's a pretty good little clip, and he mentions in it nine things, nine, nine words of advice type thing, and one of them he mentions, is that we're not perfect, but blood was spilled. He's referring to Christ, and I thought, wow, you don't see that every day, have an actor stand up and testify to that. And, uh, and he was right, he was referring to redemption. Experience of redemption, the blood of Christ. Have you trusted in it? Have you trusted in the work of Christ on your behalf? Not your work, not your upbringing, Not mommy and daddies or grandma and grandpas. Have you trusted in what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross? That's the key issue. If you do, you look forward to his appearing. That's what he's saying. From lighthouse to lighthouse. But it starts with personally trusting Christ, this experience of redemption. God, however, is interested in doing even more than that. He wants you and I, he wants to bring us into experience called sanctification. It's a long word. It really means to make us more like him, to set us apart. Well, we see the verse 14, he alludes to it by saying that he who gave himself for us that he might redeem us, there's the first cable redemption, from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people of his own possession. To purify for himself. It's this idea of to sanctify, to make you and I individually and corporately who he's pleased with, who begin to reflect more and more who he is. These experiences, these cables, they run together. When the Lord Jesus works redemption in our lives, he also works sanctification. He leads us out of the slave market of sin by paying for the ransom, and then we become his own. There's unfortunately been over the years kind of careless teaching that says, well, just come to to Jesus, get the ticket out of hell, and then go live the way you want. 
They're not understanding this picture of what God wants his people to be. You see, there's something God's people need to get a hold of, which is the beauty of salvation. Theologians sometimes lay it out this way, is that in the past, salvation is we've been delivered from sin's penalty. It's called justification. In the present, we're delivered from sin's power. It's called sanctification. And then finally, we'll be delivered from sin's presence, glorification. But we need to understand that salvation is a complete picture. It's not just simply getting out of hell. And I'm going to do what I want then. That's an abuse of grace. That's not understanding grace. The cable of redemption, where we're ransomed, there's also a cable of sanctification where we have become God's own possession in a process of being conformed into the image of Christ. And this is how we get from where we are to where God wants. And it all hangs on the cable of redemption and sanctification. The first lighthouse of grace is first a coming. It's happened. The second lighthouse of, gl- is of glory, his second coming, it will happen. And from these lighthouses, these appearances run these cables again of redemption and sanctification where it's possible to be redeemed, set free from real problem that we talked about. And having been set free, we become God's very own and he begins to clean up our act. We now have people on the process who started on the way. But then the question comes, okay, if we're Christians and we're on our way, what do we do? What do we do today? What do we practically do as a church to help you and I to get where we need to get to? I mean, how do we live specifically between these comings? How do we live between these lighthouses? What needs to happen to all of us on our journey? Glad you asked, because the text answers it. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Verse 12, the first word, instructing us. Instructing. We need edification. First word. Grace instructs us. Grace teaches us. What does it teach us to do? According to the text, verse 12 instructs us to deny ungodliness. Interesting, grace teaches us to deny. Teaches us to say no. Or, as maybe you say to your children, stop it. Grace says stop it. Quit abusing, quit following the ways of the world system. Embrace my grace and let grace lead you home. It teaches us to deny to say no. From the church's standpoint, we need this edification process to be built into people. You see, the truth of God's grace made available to us so abundantly should edify our hearts. If we understood and understand that grace led Christ to give himself, it was necessary for him to do so because of ungodliness, wickedness, and worldly passions. I then say, God, I just can't go back to those worldly passions. Since grace has brought me out, God, I don't want to go back to it. I was lost, and now I'm found. God, I don't want to go back to the pigsty. Your grace, it teaches me to say no, and it moves me forward. 
instructs me I can't go back to my old life if I am, am to be who you want me to be. It just flat out teaches me to say no. And think about the reality. To persist in sin is to insult the grace of God. And it will never get you where you want to go. It'll never get you where God wants you to go. And this purification process starts by embracing God's grace. Some maybe here this morning need to take God more serious than this. You need to take God's grace a little more serious. I remember when I first came to Jesus and back in college. Um, how do you say this kind of? You know, there's a lot to clean up. Let's just leave it at that, okay? There's a lot to clean up. And I came to faith in Jesus, and I didn't realize what happened. But it was maybe months later that I realized my language had changed unconsciously. You know, you'd say stuff that you shouldn't, like if you hit your thumb and those words kind of come, you're like, oh, where'd that come from? You know, those words, and, and, and I had a lot of them. And somewhere down the road, I reckon, ah, oh, what happened? I don't remember making a conscious choice to say, I'm just going to stop saying those words. It had nothing to do with me, and I'm, I'm convinced the grace of God taught me And the more I focused on embracing and celebrating the grace, just he changed me. And he changes us. When we focus on his grace, it teaches us to say no. So we say yes to living like you, Jesus. We call upon you, and as we call upon you, you help us say no. And we win. Every way, we win. So we need to be about edification and let grace edify us, but we also need to be about expectancy. Verse 13, as we look forward, we look forward to the blessed hope. The Bible says that those who believe that Christ will come again believe in a glorious appearing. And it brings something necessary for the process of being purified. Expectancy. Hope. Man, when we get excited about his coming, it begins to affect our living. I like how John puts it in 1 John 3, 2 through 3. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God. It has, and it has not appeared as yet we shall be, but we know that when he appears, it's a second lighthouse, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he, he is pure. I mean, what John is saying is we look at Jesus and we, we just marvel and can't wait as a second appearing. It does something to us. John says it purifies us. It, it helps us become more like him. It helps us to get from where we are to where he wants us to go when we live with expectancy. Yes, there's trials, there's hardships, but we look forward. We fix on hope. And when we do that, it helps you and I to get to where we're supposed to be going. I remember Cindy's pregnancies, and, and Lane's probably going to relate to this. Um, I was always be waiting and kind of a little anxious because I'm like, okay, here's the due date. And, but what if the baby comes early? I better make sure I'm scheduled so I can be there. That would be bad not to be there. So I want to be there. So everything I scheduled around that due date, my priorities, my calendar, everything was scheduled around her due date. And I was so excited about it. 
it significantly affected, it's safe to say, how I lived each day up to my children's arrival. That's what expectancy is. It affects the way we live our days as we look forward to his arrival. And I know if you're like me, you're like, well, I'm sure it's way down the road. I mean, we probably even think, well, Jesus won't come in my lifetime. I'm not sure I want to gamble on that. I, I think I want to be ready. And so whether he calls me home or he comes before uh, I go home, I'm going home anyways, and I want to be ready. And there's a lot of um, parables in the New Testament about being ready. And so to get where we want to go, there needs to be edification, there needs to be personally expectancy, and I think there needs to be enthusiasm and I get that from verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession. What are these people supposed to do and be like zealous for good deeds? I call it enthusiasm. Enthusiasm that says I'm excited to live a grace-filled life. We want to show people what grace has done in our lives. The primary way we do that is good deeds. You could say good deeds equal grace deeds. Look for ways to love on people. I mean, I, I hope you get excited. The opportunities that we face each day, I mean, to show grace. To just be zealous to help somebody. To be eager to listen to them. To be eager to come alongside them. I was just sharing with a brother, and he was sharing an account. He was um, in Litchfield, and he passed a car, was pulled over, and there was a, a young lady, and she, had, she was starting to walk with a, a child. And he assumed it was to the gas station, and he was right. He pulled over and asked her, and, and uh, he said, let me help you. And they weren't that far, and so he, he pulled over. He said, let me just push you there. That way you don't have to buy a gas can, that type of thing. And so it wasn't very far, and so uh, pushed her there, and and uh, then he went in, and he, he just felt compelled, and he told the checkout lady, I, I want to pay for her gas, and, uh, and, and could you give her a card, a gift card? And uh, he just felt compelled to do that. And, uh, and that lady was blessed, and she hugged him, tears in her eyes, and you have no idea how much this means. And, and, uh, but he was excited one when he was telling me this story. I'm like, this was great. And, and it is. Uh, you and I should be enthusiastic zealous to extend God's grace. Because when we do that, we become instruments. And that's part of it. God wants to use you and I between these lighthouses. That you and I would be zealous, enthusiastic about demonstrating what grace looks like. And that very thought should motivate and excite us. So grace embraced to get us from where we are to where God wants requires us to deny to let grace help us say no to, where, um, to these ungodly desires in this present system. We're to look. Look to Jesus with hope and assurance of his return. We're to be zealous to live gospel, grace-filled lives to extend that grace. And it's when we're committed to these, we become individually and corporately who God wants us to be, where he takes us where he wants us to go. Let's pray. Well, Lord, even as I speak this morning, I'm recognized there's so much between these two appearings.
that you're doing. Even in the moment of our week, of our decisions, of our priorities, you're at work. You're at work purifying for yourself a people. God, I pray we take that seriously. I pray, God, you'd help us to remember grace. It's your grace that will lead us home. It's your grace that found us just as we are and saved us. It's grace that will teach us. And Lord, when this world we live in, the pollution that surrounds us, the challenges, tragedies, and hardships assault us, somehow, some way, by your Spirit, help us to look forward. To your, to your appearing, to the marvelous truth that your grace will lead us home, that there's coming a day that we'll be with you forever. Safe in your arms. Help us to look forward to that day. And God, as we journey through this life, help us to be sensitive for those opportunities we have to model that grace to other people. Give us an enthusiasm, the sensitivity to reach out to people this week. So God, you'd look down at your children and smile. Lord, we know none of this is possible without the power, your power at work in our life. And so we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus.